working on this core technology, I just over and over again lost deal after deal because commercial satellite imagery providers that we were trying to buy data from were such a pain in the neck to work with. <laughs> they like wouldn't give us pricing. The licensing that they were offering made it impossible to actually show the imagery to anyone. And, you know, we would negotiate for three, four, five, six months and lose the opportunity that we were working on. Hello and welcome to the New Space Vision podcast sponsored by Lifeo, where we discuss new space technology, finance and innovation with executives, founders and more exciting people from the startup and the new space ecosystem. I'm Daniel Seidel. And I'm Sven Shivara, and together we are the founders of the Earth Observation Company Lifeo and New Space Vision. Today we are very excited to welcome Joe Morrison, Vice President of Commercial Product at Umbra, which provides high-resolution satellite imagery using SAR, which is short for Synthetic Aperture Radar. Hi, Joe. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we're, we're super excited for having you. We've met once very briefly here in our Berlin office, uh, but uh, absolutely uh, excited to, to, to go into a couple of topics today with you because you're really one of the outstanding experts on everything around Earth observation. But before starting into exactly what Umbra is doing, we wanted to hear a little bit about yourself. Because before landing at Umbra, you were at uh, Atzavea, right? Maybe I mispronounced that. You could help out with that. But how did you arrive at that company in the first place? What propelled you into the space and geospatial sector? Yeah, I kind of fell backwards into it. I wish, I remember when I came and visited y'all, apart from the fact that you drugged me with club mate or whatever that stuff was, it was delicious. <laughs> and I was like, I don't think I slept that night. Um, I remember y'all talking about your passion for space. That's how you met. You started going to conferences. You were thinking about maybe even building a, a constellation. And you, you found your way to the application side of the industry, which I found really impressive because most people... They, they can never let go of the cool space part. <laughs> But ultimately, like this has to lead somewhere. It has to lead to applications. I, I actually came into the industry the opposite way. I could care less about space. Um, <laughs> I, I was not one of those kids who grew up wanting to become an astronaut. I was never good at science and math and um, much to my parents' dismay and my own uh, shame. But uh, yeah, I, I, I met an entrepreneur, Robert Cheetah the CEO of Xavier, uh, and he was talking about building a mission around social, environmental um, uh, justice. And, you know, he was doing it through this lens of geospatial data and mapping. And he made this really impassioned case that there's no map on earth that exists without some sort of social or environmental context to it. And uh, just the act of you know, visualizing data on a map, uh, you know, requires the connection of a bunch of different disparate skills. It's a very fascinating and difficult challenge. It's, it's captivated some of the world's smartest people for a thousand years. Um, and so I just liked him. I was like, I just want to work for that guy. <laughs> he just was so smart. Uh, what I didn't know then that I know now is that he's also one of the hardest working people. Um, that I'll, I've ever known or ever will know. And 
um, being being around someone like that who just has that kind of deep, uh, contagious passion for what they're doing, it tends to rub off. So I, I worked for five, five and a half years at Azavia, and my last two or three years were uh, based on a grant that we won from from NASA to do analysis on satellite imagery that eventually evolved into a whole platform for processing satellite imagery and an open source library called raster vision. That's still super popular for folks working with satellite imagery that makes it really easy to apply deep learning techniques to satellite imagery. So I, I came in from a consultant that was always doing applied stuff. We were doing professional services work. And so we're working with fortune 500 companies and nonprofits and everyone in between startups um, and in, in the process of building out those custom applications for our customers and, and working on this core technology, I just over and over again lost deal after deal because commercial satellite imagery providers that we were trying to buy data from were such a pain in the neck to work with. <laughs> they like wouldn't give us pricing. The licensing that they were offering made it impossible to actually show the imagery to anyone. Um, and you know, we would negotiate for three, four, five, six months and lose the opportunity that we were working on, uh, in the meantime. So I got really frustrated with that. I started writing about it publicly online during, um, 2020, which, you know, the pandemic was happening. We were kind of shut down. I don't have kids. So, um, I was at home in our apartment, just looking for something to pass the time. And, uh, I decided to start writing about it, kind of loudly complaining about it online, um, and yeah, that's how I got connected to Umbra. One of the founders of Umbra, Gabe Dominicello, he read um, that first essay that I wrote about how broken the satellite imagery industry is. Um, and he said, hey, we're trying to fix it. And the rest is history. I really hit it off with him. I joined up with Umbra in, in uh, early 2021 and haven't looked back. Yeah, and I definitely can say for anyone who's listening to this podcast and enjoys anything about Earth observation data, um, a closer look by you, Joe Morrison, uh, is, is really great read and highly recommended. So exactly because you already took the question out of our mouths, which was, is it true that you've been hired based on the article, uh, the commercial satellite imagery business model is broken and it seems to be the case. Very cool. Yeah, nice. And uh, this boss, uh, so what we found in our research also said something about you, which is basically this guy's like an asshole, right? Um, so is it true that he, he's saying this like, things and can you identify yourself with that one what, what did you say asshole is that what you just said yeah yeah that's what that was that, that was what we found out online right so i, I should talk to him i've like, been i've been called many things um it's uh, you know there's this perception because i've continued to write about it often a critique it it, it comes from a place of love not not a place of resentment but I continue to critique the industry overall because I don't think it's anywhere close to achieving its potential. Agreed. The main bottleneck is entrepreneurs like you. Who who are the people that are going to take all this data we're producing and turn it into value for people? Um, and yeah, I in the course of writing criticisms, um, I've critiqued many business models. Mostly it comes not from me feeling any uh, anger towards another entrepreneur, but I think about what, what do I wish I had known six months ago? And I write the essay as if I'm giving myself advice from six months ago. And it's usually mistakes I've made that I'm writing about, not, not mistakes other people are making. So, um, but uh, 
yeah, it's funny. It, some people take really deep offense. I've, I've definitely, I've, some people yeah. have really like, and, and people think that I'm not being genuine, that I'm trying to be controversial just for attention. And, you know, who knows, maybe that is what's going on deep down. But uh, to be honest, like <laughs> the vast majority of feedback I've gotten for writing online has been overwhelmingly positive. And, uh, you know, what, what, no, no, no. We think it's really great because exactly you're bringing up a lot of the problems which are really present in the business, in, in the business, earth observation business. But we're going to come to that later. But then you wanted to say yeah, something. No, exactly. Also, like Dominicello said, uh, you know, that this is what other executives in the space industry uh, say about you. I also don't know if someone really said this, but, it, <laughs> you know, just, just see it. Because I, I think you're really communicating the pain points in a way which um, some people, um, you know, they don't have the courage or like they don't have, uh, they're not bold enough to say this because they are depending on these operators, right? So if you're buying a lot of data from an Excel operator, you better don't say in public that they are really, really, really having a shit distribution model. Um, and so, so this is, this is, I think, where this is coming from. But uh, yeah, it was, was definitely funny when we, when we <laughs> got some background about I, you. Yeah. Well, I think it, I think you're right. A lot of people don't have the courage to say publicly what we talk about privately in this industry. And I think podcasts like this one that that bring things to the fore, like if there's someone interested in breaking into this space, they can't just call up one of us and say, hey, what's like really going on? Yeah. But they can listen to this podcast episode and start to get a sense and start to be informed stuff that you can't just read online, stuff that you have to To, to know from conversations. So I, I think you're doing a huge service to bring some of these conversations out more publicly. Yeah. And some of your statements we're going to deconstruct later and going to discuss a bit further. So, But exactly. I mean, there, there are a lot of things which we would love to talk to you about, but I think it's very important to understand what you right now do and, and what Umbra does before we dive deeper into some of the other aspects. So could you tell us uh, what Umbra is all about? Yeah, absolutely. So Umbra has a synthetic aperture radar constellation. So we build an Earth observation constellation. SAR, as it's often abbreviated, is a really interesting uh, phenomenology. It's not, a, it's not a new technology. It was invented in the 50s. People forget this. <laughs> um, but it's been, at least in the United States, where Umbra is based, it's been illegal up until recently uh, to sell commercial synthetic aperture radar from space. It's only in the last few years, maybe four or five years, that um, the first commercial remote sensing licenses have been issued by uh, NOAA, the group in the United States that regulates commercial remote sensing. Over in Europe, where you are, it's been legal for a lot longer. And there's folks like uh, Airbus, their German subsidiary who's worked with DLR to build um, the their SAR constellation. There's EGEOS, which is part of a giant Italian conglomerate that does communications. Um, so there's been there's been commercial SAR over here for a lot longer, uh, but SAR SAR is in general a, a new technology for most commercial customers. It's not something that they've worked with before. What makes it exciting or unique from a commercial perspective is that you can see at night, you can see through clouds, through weather. Um, it's radar data, so it's not like optical. It's not super easy to interpret visually. And it doesn't just have an amplitude component, the, the strength of the return of the signal. It's also got what's called a phase component, the period of the wave, almost, almost like a range finding component included in the data. So 
um, it's it's a it t- it's a it's a steep learning curve to learn how to work with it and, and how to interpret it. But if you can get good with it, um, especially for man-made structures and human activity, you can use it to monitor much more reliably than its optical counterpart because people tend to live in places where it's cloudy, where there's moisture, um, and I think. <laughs> One thing I've learned from working in the satellite imagery industry is that it sounds stupid, but people really don't give enough credence to, to how clouds just completely screw with the business of optical imagery. It just makes it really hard to reliably capture anywhere on earth that people tend to congregate. So SAR is not a replacement for optical data, but it's certainly an excellent complement. Um, and what Umbra is all about is selling those pixels really cheaply, uh, and really easily, conveniently, and not focusing on building our own analytics, not focusing on selling satellites, just making it um, a, a simple experience for entrepreneurs like yourselves to come integrate with our API, understand what it's going to cost, have an open license that allows you to do whatever you want with it. Um, and our thesis is that if we could make it actually easy to work with a satellite imagery provider, that this whole pent-up entrepreneurial spirit will get unleashed and you know a hundred to a thousand companies will form that really dominate every conceivable niche liveos is on track to become the dominant force in linear infrastructure monitoring but there's a million other niches and i'm sure y'all are thinking about expanding into some of those as well but you know that you can't get affordable data to to go build those applications or even if it's affordable you can't get it reliably and have confidence that you can offer a product. So that's what we're trying to solve. Yeah, very happy to hear uh, this uh, from you. And um, no, we don't pay him for saying that life is a dominant player in linear asset monitor. We, we just uh, make it obvious that this is the case. <laughs> <laughs> you just mentioned something about the clouds. Sometimes I also, uh, I'm surprised, you know, like you see in the marketing material, hey, we can have 20 captures a day, we visit whatever. And at the end, um, yeah, people just don't talk about clouds, right? So you ignore them like if they were not there. And you even ignore them to a point that you capture images in space. You could have even a very simplified uh, cloud detection algorithm on the edge. Um, you don't need a big fancy device. Uh, what was now now happening in the past um, weeks, we have seen multiple announcements about this. And they just sent down all these cloud images, right? So yeah. um, it's, it's ridiculous. But with radar, with ZAR, you basically can have these multiple images a day wherever you are, right? Even in the rainforest where, where there are a lot of clouds. So that's that's pretty cool. But when, when we now think about this upcoming um, ZAR market, um, there are basically two companies which uh, which are there, which are, I would say, like the, 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 the front runner, which is Capella and ISI. Mm. ISI even started before Capella. Mm-hmm. And then there are the early followers, um, like Synspective. And I would also count Umbra um, as, as these uh, um, early followers. So can you tell us a bit what Umbra is making uh, different compared to, uh, let's say, Capella and ISI? And like, how is your approach different and how are you competing with these? Yeah, that's a great question. So before I talk about how we're different than the other SAR providers, And just quickly on your point about the optical providers, uh, really SAR is people like to frame it or position it as an alternative to, to optical because of the cloud problem. Um, but it's, it's not, it's a complement. And the best folks are going to combine synthetic aperture radar with optical data, with thermal data, 
with you know on and on and on to get a more complete yep. picture of, of what's happening. Um, and so within that, what how I break it down is if you're doing mapping, you want optical data, and it's okay if it's a little bit out of date. You want really high resolution. You want Airbus or Maxar optical data that's really well georectified. That's your base layer. That's like what where the roads are, where the buildings are that don't change very, very frequently. If you're doing monitoring, probably you want synthetic aperture radar with optical mixed in every once in a while as a reference. Um, and uh, so for that, you might look at planet scope. Planet's got great data. You might look at satellogic, people that are monitoring, you know, close to daily for optical data. Um, and you know you might get a clear shot once every five to seven days, depending on where in the world you are. You know people love to show sample data over the Middle East because it's never cloudy there, but most of the <laughs> world is cloudy. Um, so I would think of it always as not us versus them, but how do these things combine to, to build a better product? Also, part of the reason that I think that satellite imagery companies doing their own analytics will never work because they're always going to bias towards just using their own data because they have such a price or cost advantage on their own data. Anyway, so, okay, setting that aside, how is Umbra different than its competitors? Number one, we've got, we, we invented some technology. I mean, before I joined, I, I had promised myself um, after my first company that I started in college, I, I sold backpacks in college as a, as a business. Um, and I didn't invent the backpack. The backpacks I sold, there's nothing really that special about them. I mean, I was, was proud of them, but um, I was like, I'm never going to work for a company that didn't invent something ever again because it's just marketing. If you're not inventing something, then you're just storytelling, and that felt kind of hollow. Umbra has invented some stuff. It's invented a really high-gain, really efficient parabolic mesh antenna that unfurls in space. Um, that really, really amazing antenna allows us to capture really, really high resolution data when combined with some proprietary power um, on board. We build our own satellites. It's pretty inspiring if you like go to the office in California where we're building them um, and you see you see them being put together. It makes it very tangible. Like, oh gosh, this is like a manufacturing business. This is not just like a software, you know, thing. Um, and what that adds up to is a system that can produce lots and lots and lots of high resolution, small footprint spotlight data. That's what we're best at. That's what we're going to be the best in the world at. And when I say high resolution, I'm talking about um, our, our best product is going to be a 25 centimeter by 25 centimeter ground projected spotlight image. So, um, and, and a single look complex image. So it's not going to be multi-looks. Um, and that's a that's a super impressive product that doesn't exist on the market today. Nobody offers that today. Uh, and so that type of information, 25 centimeter spotlight data, you can see ground vehicles, you can see human activity, you can see change on a very human scale. And so uh, by, by selling that for an affordable price and, and an open license, uh, we hope that we're gonna crack open a new set of analytics products that haven't existed before. Um, the one step back from that 25 centimeter product, which is sort of like our, our crown jewel will be a 50 centimeter product and that we're going to sell for $750. And again, an open license. We'll also have a one meter spotlight product, which is historically one meter spotlight is like the kind of standard resolution for spotlight imagery. We'll sell that for $500. 
um, and we're selling that today for $500. So um, I guess the point is rather than try to like get the fastest revisit or, um, you know, get coherent revisit over the whole world, what we're focused on is rapid tasking a very high resolution spotlight. And when you combine that with the high resolution optical systems that are coming online in the next year, I think the Legion constellation from Maxar, the Pelican constellation from um, Planet, the Pleiades Neo constellation that's just gone up from Airbus, you'll just be able to have like super, like historically high resolution SAR with historically high resolution optical. And the stuff that's going to come out of that is, is I think, going to be really exciting. So that, that's how we differentiate. There's a, there's a technical component to it, which is just very, very pristine, high-resolution data that's, that's never been affordable to buy or even possible to buy commercially. Um, and combined with this business model where the pricing is just like posted on the website, the licensing is open, there's a clean, modern API, you're not like sending an email and asking for a response. Just, just doing the yeah. basics. Unfortunately, in this industry, that's enough to differentiate yourself. Um, so that's what we're focused on. So, so you won't, you won't look into our faces. Um, come back a day later and tell us the price. Uh, no, because I, I, I practiced a lot in that, like to get a good price. Just now, just kidding. Um, yeah, but yeah. this is <laughs> this is very often like you don't know how this pricing is uh, coming from, right? Where, where is it coming from? And um, I've heard uh, like weird um, discount factors, uh, um, like in negotiations, um, also from others before basically we started um, from from th some other founders in this domain. And I'm happy about um, every company which is uh, just uh, having a standard pricing model communicates this and basically uh, scales through this, right? So you can build a business model on top of this. And we have companies such as Skywatch, which have appeared in our last podcast, which also want to democratize this, right? So. Um, but maybe before before we go into distribution, I would like to understand um, what's the status of your constellation because you already launched not only one but multiple um, satellites into orbit. Yeah, that's right. We've got three three big hunks of metal floating around up there right now. They're not really floating; they're they're technically falling to the Earth. That's what orbiting <laughs> is. Uh, but they're they're whizzing around the Earth. Um, And we're, yeah, we, we commercialized with the launch of our third satellite earlier this year. So um, we're working with customers on monitoring all kinds of different things with that third satellite. Our fourth and fifth satellites launch this month. So um, that's going to be a huge deal. Those two satellites, we're very, very excited about those two satellites and how capable that they're going to be. So, um You know, once those are commissioned early next year, <clears throat> I expect to get a lot more aggressive about sharing sample data, about promoting ourselves. We've been kind of quiet this year because we're putting our heads down. We've got a lot of technology still to, to continue building out around our API, getting our um, data quality as, as high as we possibly can. But I think next year, once we bring on those next two satellites, then there's like two or three more going up pretty quickly over the course of next year beyond that we're going to suddenly have like a big constellation with a lot of excess capacity. And back to that pricing question, one of the things that we're looking at is, okay, the prices that I just shared, those are just, those are the prices. Like that's what it costs to buy a one meter spotlight imagery image from us. It's 500 bucks, but that's for like, a, you, you'll hit the API, you get back an instant feasibility. It says like over this location of interest, here's every opportunity in the next week we'll have to image it. 
pick your, it's like booking a hotel room, like pick your um, opportunity and it's yours. But, you know, in order to enable that user experience, you actually wind up with a lot of empty orbits uh, because, you know, you're charging for people to get guaranteed access on the satellite when they book it. So one of the things we're playing with is because these things can produce so much data, and I mean like hundreds of images a day versus like the average SAR satellite maybe produces dozens of images a day. So these things are super capable. Because of, because of all that excess capacity, we're thinking about creating new products like a subscription monitoring product where you don't know where within the week you'll, you'll get the image. It could be Monday, it could be Friday, but every week you're gonna get an image um, and you can pay a steeply discounted rate compared to that list price. Or uh, taking it to the opposite extreme, putting cross-link terminals on the satellite so that we can communicate in real time with them all the time. And instead of waiting a couple hours to get your data down once it's been captured. This podcast is sponsored by LiveView. LiveView's mission is to unlock the full potential of Earth observation data for humanity and life on Earth through AI. We are the global market leader in infrastructure monitoring and are bringing the power of satellite data analytics to other industries globally. Talk to us to find out how satellite data can benefit you and your company via podcast at live-eo.com. And instead of waiting a couple hours to get your data down, once it's been captured, you'll get it down within 5, 10, 15 minutes. Um, if you've got something that's really time sensitive and you'll, you'll pay a lot more for that product than you will our standard pricing. So it's, it's interesting how, uh, there's some kind of different levers that we can pull. Um, and we're, we're going to, I mean, our guiding principle is be the easiest people to work with out of all your satellite imagery <laughs> providers. Like how do we become the easiest ones to work with your favorite ones to work with, regardless of the data, just what is it like to work with us? And so <clears throat> we're not, we're not as concerned to be frank with making as much money or owning as much of the economics as possible in the next year. We want to grow the industry as fast as possible in the next year. And we think that by doing that over the next five and 10 years, we'll wind up building a really big, meaningful, long-term business. Um, and so what are the things that we can do now that are going to help y'all build new products more quickly, launch them more quickly, make them profitable more quickly? Because ultimately your success is what allows us to be successful. We're just going to index the growth of the great applications companies over time. And so if we try to do kind of what traditionally has been done, where we compete with our own customers and we try to do everything from building the satellites to offering the analytics to building custom applications, then yeah, we'll own a bigger chunk of, of the share of money to be had in that one industry, but there's all the rest of the opportunity in this industry that will be stunting by doing that. So that's kind of our strategy. Yeah, and I, I have to say that uh, you are pretty much a role model with this because all the other satellite operators are doing it uh, different, right? There's a government which is prioritized um, and also the, the API you mentioned, like the distribution tool to make this in a fully automated way. Uh, so there are so many um, topics we now want to dive <laughs> into, which you which you just teased, which is basically awesome. Um, so the, the first one is you mentioned the API where I can just task and get feasibility and then then um, uh, also confirm it. Um, and I have seen a lot of operators in the past uh, years which talked about the API and then I said, yeah, can I use it? Uh, it will be launched end of the year. 
I asked end of the year, yeah, next year. And then honestly, for more than two to three years right now. Um, and then there are companies like Capella and Planet, which have the API there and a very big and very huge data platform. And I think it's very much underestimated. So my question is, is your API already there or, or, or is it also, will it be there at some point in time? Yeah, I mean, you, you can see the, um, the API docs are public online right now. Docs.api.canopy.umber.space, very, very catchy URL. <laughs> um, so, and we use the API internally to task our satellites um, and, and get feasibility. It, I'll tell you, it has been kind of frustrating. It is a lot more work than I expected a year ago. We made a bunch of progress in the first year. Then the second year, to, to go from like 80% reliable to like 99% reliable on our ground services is a tremendous amount of effort behind the scenes that I didn't have an appreciation for. So I really don't knock any of the providers that take too long to get their APIs out because frankly, like it's a miracle that you can command a satellite, have it spin around, do a thing and send the data down. And it just works considering the logistics involved there. But um, yeah, our API docs are public online uh, and we'll be onboarding our first customers onto that API in January or February next year. I hope um, I hope we will be one of these customers. Yeah, well, I mean, the, folks like you, the way I think of it is, if we can make you happy, then we're kind of future-proofed. The folks that are struggling or new to APIs or modern software development, like you're going to be following the best practices, and you're a very software-forward company. So, uh, yeah, you're you have a strategic role to play beyond just buying data from us. You know what great. APIs look like, you know what competitors' APIs look like. Um, and I do want to give a quick shout out. You mentioned that we're a role model on the pricing thing and the business model thing. A quick shout out to Satellogic, who has public pricing on their website. They're the first company I know of to do that. And a shout out to Planet, who was the first company to go all in on, a, on an API. And a lot of the applications that I worked on in my prior role were, were built on top of Planet's API. Um, it's funny when you talk to their product team, they're very much unhappy with the status quo. They want to improve it dramatically. They've got all kinds yeah. of ideas. That's a great sign. So um, I think we're taking a similar tack. We're not just going to wait around for something to be perfect. Like we're going to launch um, an API before we feel like it's fully fleshed out because it'll never be good enough. If we're, if we want to be great, it will never be satisfied with it. So yeah, it, it's, it's coming. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, how how was that saying? If you are not embarrassed by the first by a first release, you have released too late. Um, so it seems like you're following this kind of uh, approach. But hey, as said, there are so many topics which we want to cover, and there was one article on Space News, uh, which was kind of I, maybe we could use the word viral, but I don't want to want to use this word in this context. Uh, which was um, taken from a conversation which was happening, I think, at the Paris Space yeah, Week, World um, Week earlier this year, exactly, World um, Satellite Business Week. And it was about a discussion around exactly where should radar constellation focus on, either on the governmental side or on the commercial side. And obviously, you made the point that by being very customer-centric, you want to be very much focused on the B2B world, on selling to commercial uh, customers out there. So other say they have to prioritize the government because uh, what they are, sa are saying is that they first want to establish a 
sustainable business case with these big large governmental customers to build up that technology before enabling the commercial market. Um, why do you do you see and why does Umbra see things differently? Yeah, I, I don't mean to knock the folks that have come before us, but I think it's a cultural, I think it's a cultural thing. <clears throat> most people, most people that have started satellite imagery companies, well, you can take like Airbus and Maxar, which are the most successful ones. Those, those were both founded by defense focused people. I mean, Walter Scott at Maxar literally worked for a, a national lab before starting Maxar in the early nineties, which is crazy. He started Maxar in the early nineties. You want to talk about somebody who's a role mm. model or a trailblazer? It, it was barely legal. Like commercial satellite imagery, like the act passed in like 91 to even make it possible. So um, <clears throat> they were very much defense focused. And then we have this wave of companies started in the early 2010s to, you know, um, you know, satellite or, or Skybox, Satellogic, Planet, um, Capella, you mentioned, ISI. Most of those. Rapid Eye. What, who? Rapid Eye. Rapid Eye, which is now uh, part of Planet. Um, they were tech folks that were, you know, I don't know about rapid eye, but for, for the most part, those other, those are like Silicon Valley style tech companies and they're learning the defense market. And I think <clears throat> what's funny is that Umbra, Umbra is actually founded by the CEO worked on classified missions for the U S government before starting Umbra. So, so people always think like, what do you mean you're not focused on the government or I th personally, I think if you actually listen to the United States government, I have no idea what the defense, you know, and intelligence communities in Europe are like and, and abroad. But if you if you actually listen to the to the U.S. government, they want two things: they want people that can build incredible custom missions based on requirements that they've uh, generated themselves, and that's like the Northrop Grumman's and, and Raytheons of the world. So that's one thing you could do is you could build custom missions. Or they just want to buy stuff commercially off the shelf, and whenever possible, they want to buy commercially. Um, and if you if you take them at their word, they don't want you to say, "Oh, the government is our most important customer. We're going to do everything for the government, like whatever they want." They want you to say, "We have a sustainable business commercially, and we're also serving the government, and they're going to enjoy the cost benefits that go along with that, where they're just another commercial customer." I think it's a, there's always going to be. A little bit of you know the federal government demands more than than a normal customer, but um, they want a really good API. They want clear and low pricing. They want friendly licensing. They want all the same stuff that commercial clients do too. I think what what the rub is is are they willing to take first in first out? You know, just be treated like anybody else, or do they want the ability to preempt others? That that tends to be the crux item. Because if you have a really, like if, if for one of your linear infrastructure clients, there's a major wind event that, that you think is maybe knocked down trees across that, that line, um, you don't, you don't want to like commit to buying data from us on a fast turnaround that's supposed to be captured in the next 12 hours and then find out two hours before time of capture that, oh, it got bumped for something more important. Like you need something that you can rely on. So that's why we're reserving capacity that we call commercial capacity that will not be bumpable for anybody 
from the federal government or otherwise. It's it's there for the commercial market, but um, we can work creatively with the government to meet their needs separately. We have we actually separate the business into a government programs group, which is run by my colleague Jason Malaire, and then I'm on the commercial product team, which is a separate team. Um, and so the the core capability behind it, the, the actual satellite and software, um, it's the same capability. It's just selling it via these two different channels. Uh, and yeah, to me, it's not that hard to, to square both of those customers. Um, but where people get confused yeah. is they try to do the custom missions for the government. They try to position their commercial constellation as a custom mission for the government, and it's not. And that's where they run into trouble. So the government asks for things that they that basically are in direct contention with, with the commercial capacity they need to be reserving. Yeah. And uh, if I remember correctly, um, when you visited us in the office a few weeks ago, you said there are three categories of, uh, of, of ZAR um, business models. Um, the one uh, or, or use case, the first one is uh, event-driven um, ZAR acquisition. The second one is the frequent monitoring case. And the third one is this high prestige uh, ZAR um, capturing for, for the defense industry. And now, um, like, why are the others uh, like focusing so much on this last case? Because there is a lot of money already. And uh, I agree that long term, this, I would call them bread and butter business, that you just have a frequent monitoring case. They, there should be more money in all these commercial cases, right? Because you don't have to focus on uh, some, some critical zones or whatever. It's basically you will find these commercial cases everywhere on the planet. But right now, the market is not developed yet, but the defense market is. So um, if you look at Satellogic, for example, um, because they're public, you, you could see they, are, they made four million, uh, a bit more than four million US dollars in the entire year 2021 when they went public. So it's very hard to go down this commercial road, right? So, so uh, how, how are you doing it? Um, so, and, and what is your strategy against this? Yeah, it, it, yeah. It's, it's not easy. It's not easy to, especially right now, be an optical provider because there's a bunch of optical providers and they're fairly mature and it's a bloodbath. It's difficult to do that monitoring with an optical system because of the, the cloud problem that we talked about. Also because optical systems, man, It, you have a big glass lens, a telescope. Often you need to build that in a clean room if you want to get really pristine data, and that's super expensive. Um, and it's heavy, and it's a real aperture as opposed to a synthetic one. So the bigger the lens, the higher the resolution, the higher you fly it, the larger the footprint, and you wind up optimizing for these things like Legion and Pleiades Neo, Neo that are really big, like truck-sized, pickup truck-sized. I don't know if that's a good analogy because I didn't see any pickup trucks when I visited Berlin. <laughs> but like van-sized uh, satellites that um, they cost millions and millions of dollars, not only to build, but just to launch. And then when you actually talk to entrepreneurs about the, these monitoring use cases, you know, $100, less than $100 in observation is where you really start to crack open a bunch of new use cases. And these satellites just can't produce that many clear observations. So uh, op optical is just until someone can figure out a way to build an optical satellite that can do 50 centimeter resolution or better for like a hundred thousand bucks. I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure how they're going to match the, the commercial demand, at least the commercial demand that I'm aware of. Um, but then the, the intelligence community and defense, they're not, they'll, they'll do monitoring for a thousand dollars in observation, you know? So, Um, that's why people are drawn to it. It's just, it's, you know, and, and 
here's the unfortunate truth. It's not free like in SaaS to support, you know, the, the marginal customer. You have to pay to get that data down from Orbit. I mean, that that's one thing that I we were mentioning earlier, like edge processing and cloud detection. I think it's a lot more important when it's a useless image and, and you're paying like a few bucks to get that, you know, amortized, to get that yeah. image down from Orbit. It's an expensive thing when you're trying to capture hundreds of images a day and half of them are useless. So anyway, um, yeah, I... I agree that uh, it's a it's a bit of a it's a bit of a challenging time, especially for for optical companies. And you're seeing it somewhat with Satellogic, who's been more or less cut out of the U.S. federal uh, um, opportunity, which I think is a shame. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I've actually I've refined the model a little bit. I wrote an essay last week, maybe that I published those three categories. I changed the name of event driven to mobilization as the category. And then the other two categories are monitoring and mapping. Um, and I, I came up with, I'm pretty proud of this Venn diagram where you have resolution, latency, and coverage. And if you want high resolution and low latency, that's mobilization. That's the prestige intelligence. That's like, I want it now and I want it to be really great. If you have large coverage and high resolution, that's mapping. That's like the base map. That's MaxR, that's Airbus. And if you have um, uh, low latency and high coverage, that's planet scope, that's monitoring, that's, you know, and so yeah. understanding like which of those categories you're optimizing for, I think really helps clarify your product decisions. We at Umbra are op- optimizing for mobilization. We want you to be able to snap your fingers, get a high resolution image. Um, and that means that we're never gonna be good for mapping because we won't have super high coverage. And we're not going to be good for broad area monitoring because, again, we're going to have small footprint. But we might be good for small area monitoring. We might be good for short-lived monitoring projects. So just being able to tell people up front what you are and are not good for helps with sales. Like, I can't tell you how many times when I was buying satellite imagery, I never had a single salesperson in, like, dozens and dozens of these opportunities. I never had a single salesperson be like, oh, we're not good for that use case. Yeah, you don't want to talk to us for that. But True. I think that's part of it is just being willing to be like, we know what we're aiming at and, and who, we're, who we're optimizing for. And we cannot waste our time on, on all the noise because there's a lot of noise. Yeah, we, we want to uh, make a transition more into the ecosystem. But before that, I have to ask this follow up question, because if you optimize for the mobilization case, which I call it event driven case, you don't know, for example, when the next hurricane comes and so on. And you have a lot of uh, like very hard to predict downtime when no one tasks. Like, what what do you do at that time? Like, or like, or, yeah, or, like why did you go for the event uh, mobilization case? Yeah, I think I think you you analyze that downtime, and then you offer it as a bundle, and you say, hey, there's a there's a certain amount of uncertainty that we've modeled where we have very high confidence we'll get an observation within this uncertainty this three-day period or one-week period or one-month period. Um, and because we're not making any money on those empty orbits and you're interested in all these places that aren't, you know, typical areas of high interest for the mobilization use case, if you're willing to commit to 100 areas once a week for a year, we'll give you like a huge discount on um, the list price. And and actually, if you look at the, if you look at the price curve, latency is the thing most correlated with, with price. And so if I can get you an image that's super high resolution 
within 30 minutes, I can maybe charge you $10,000 for that image. Hmm. If I can get it to you within a day, I can charge you a hundred dollars. And if I can get it to you within a week, I can charge, um, you know, $10. So it, it, it's kind of crazy how, how it follows that, that steep curve. It's not even, uh, it's exponential, but it's not even like a square. It's like a, it's like a cube or like a quadratic. It's like a crazy steep function. So, you know, most people think I can't offer you tens of dollars of images. That's going to undermine my tens of thousands of dollars business. But that's not true. If it's if it's a sliding scale of latency, you can offer both. And it's interesting. We have customers who are willing to pay one price for a monitoring product that's super uncertain and weekly. And the same customer is willing to pay a much higher price for a guaranteed collect with short notice if, if some event triggers them to need that image from the same sensor, the same resolution, everything. So to me, that, that's been the aha moment is like, you know, if you're, if you're trying to like find encroachment on a rail line, then yeah, sometime in the next week and the next month, and you don't want to pay much for it. But if there's a major wind event that you're tracking on that same rail line that you're trying to find right now in the next 12 hours, whether or not you need to like send somebody out to go cut it up, then you're willing to pay a lot more. It's a lot more valuable to you. So that's how I think about it. Yeah. Last question about Umbra before we want to talk uh, briefly about the ecosystem and uh, ZAR technology as, as such, which is you've now really made it clear that Umbra is in for the long run. And, and this is really great. And I think everything you, which you've said makes so much sense and is so logical and just so clear. I really love it. But uh, exactly coming back to Umbra, you're in for the long run. Um, my question is, how is Umbra funded? Because um, I would suspect you're VC-backed and VCs sometimes uh, tend to ha have the shorter time horizon in mind when they make an investment. So maybe can you give us uh, one or two sentences about that? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a prescient question. Uh, we don't make a whole lot of hubbub when we raise money. Some people like go and try to get an article in TechCrunch or whatever, Umbra raises a bajillion dollars. Guilty. Pro, pro, yeah, same here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, for you, you have to do it because you're trying to convince a, a global 3,000 company or a Fortune 500 company to trust you with an important thing. How are they? They see that as a signal. Oh, these impressive VCs believe in these people. Okay, I'm willing to take a chance. We don't have to convince you that we're, you know, we just got to show you data. That's all you need. You don't care how we were funded. Like, we can show you data and give you an API, and you're like, okay, cool. Um, We are an American company, so we have to file with the SEC every time we fundraise. So if you know how to look on the Edgar search, you can figure out how much we fundraise. Maybe I shouldn't be saying that on a podcast, but technically it's public information. But yeah, we are venture-backed and we've raised a significant amount of money. Um, and that allows us um, you know, the luxury of being able to think long-term. One difference between us and uh, you know, a lot of companies in this space is Our, our, the, the, uh, one of our board members and, and the lead of our last fundraising round is a guy named John Burbank. It's an individual who has a very long-term outlook on his personal wealth and, and the impact that he's trying to have on the world. And so, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of cool when you can raise tens of millions of dollars, more or less from an individual instead of from like a like a traditional venture capital firm with a bunch of pension funds as their LPs, like they, you can take a maybe slightly longer term view. Um, and the other thing that helps is the way we talk about ourselves, we're not like a SAR company. That's not how we think of ourselves. 
we think of ourselves as a space systems company capable of building new and innovative space systems. SAR is the first one that we're doing, but, you know, and that goes back to the government strategy. There's stuff that we don't talk about publicly that we're building for the U.S. government and, and for other large customers that um, are extremely innovative and require like a significant amount of engineering expertise. SAR, I mean, I, I love it because I'm like, okay, you guys go do all that cool, crazy next generation stuff. You know, three years from now, once we announce that and it's public, maybe I'll have a role in trying to like sell that commercially. But but in the meantime, I get to go sell what what is considered at the company old technology, just regular synthetic aperture radar. It's been around since the 50s and 60s. It's nothing new by by Umbra's standards, um, but it's new to to our customers. And so I'm focused on commercializing that. There's a whole other function. You know, we have a portfolio, an R&D portfolio. And, and when we talk to investors, that's what they're really interested in. They get the SAR thing. They get that we can make money mm -hmm. selling SAR. But what they're buying into is a company that's going to have a lot of lines of business in the future, not just synthetic aperture radar. And they, yeah. they're privy to information that we don't share publicly. They see what those systems look like and what we're doing um, there. Uh, so... Yeah, I, I would say that's maybe one difference. It's also a reason that we're not like, oh, we're going to do a bunch of analytics on our SAR because we have other ways to make money besides SAR. Um, so anyway, yeah, yeah. That, that gives us a longer term horizon, I think, than a, than a typical SAR vendor. And also that's what you uh, need to collaborate with Liveio, right? And I always see us not only as a customer, more, more also as, as a partner in this field right now because what you're doing is, 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 is pretty, um, pretty new. So, um, yeah, exciting stuff. And I will leave it up to the listener to think what these non-ZAR space systems could be so that we don't talk about this specifically. So let's talk about ZAR. Um, uh, ZAR data is very complex, very hard to get training data for standard machine learning algorithms. It all looks so different compared to the human eye. Um, so, yeah, what is the most crazy capability you have, uh, you have learned about this data source that it was able to capture? Yeah, yeah. Uh so we talked about this in your office. I think the element of SAR that I'm most excited about from a technical perspective is um, what's called phase history. So I mentioned that there's an amplitude product and a phase product. You know, technically in a synthetic aperture radar image, you take a period of observation samples and you reduce them to a single sort of almost averaged observation. That's how you get the amplitude image. Um, and you get the phase component, the single look complex phase component. Complex data refers to the, the phase information. Um, but it's a period of integration. And so for us, like a, like a 50 centimeter image, it might take one to two seconds for us to capture. There's, there's a time series across that period of one to two seconds. And the perspective changes quite a bit. I mean, we're flying many kilometers across the Earth's surface. Um, in that one to two seconds. And that's what gives us the giant synthetic aperture. Phase history, again, has not been legal to share um, until very recently. Since when? Well, since I, I can't when? say exactly since when, but until very, very recently. Uh, um, there's also reasons that people don't like to share phase history, which is if you know enough about phase history and about our system, you can, you can infer things about how we built the system that we might want to keep proprietary. Um, and so that, that's another disincentive. But the point is, 
instead of a, a snapshot in time of the phase, you get the entire period of phase. So the entire phase history. And that's just like, instead of, you know, it's just, a, it's just another dimension. It's a time series dimension. So the craziest thing I've heard people do with phase history, keep in mind that phase history is typically, you know, it's, it's considered R and D it's not standard, even within the intelligence community. Mostly the intelligence community uses phase history in an aerial context. Most of the SAR that's collected, is collected off of drones or very high altitude um, uh, um, airplanes. That's how the SAR is collected. Imagine if you ever go on like flight scanner and you look at Ukraine, there's like planes that just circle Ukraine. You know, mm -hmm. they're probably pointing SAR through the clouds at what's going on on the ground. So phase history, you, you know, I've heard anecdotally from from customers that you can look at like whether or not something is vibrating by looking at the variance in phase across the period of integration because um, the phase will change subtly like if an air conditioner is on on the roof of a, of a building that's gonna that magnetic field is going to interact with the phase component on return and, and you can build up these signature libraries to figure out whether or not you know that thing is on or off you can you can look at fan blades spinning and if you know the size and shape of the fan blades, you can infer the rate at which they're spinning. You can you can even do things like uh, the, the the craziest one that I've heard is a, a company that um, was looking for metal under a tree canopy, and um, they're doing it with X band data, which is you know in theory it's supposed to bounce off the top of the tree canopy, but some of it leaks through the tree canopy. Um, and when they actually ran the test. And they, they, they put a bunch of equipment under trees out in the field. You know, they, they found a bunch of that equipment. They, they were able, the algorithm worked. And it's a heuristic-based algorithm. They sort of intuited how would phase interact differently with, with metal than it would with tree canopy. Can we isolate that signature in the phase history? But they had one false positive. They had many false positives, but one of the false positives that they went out and checked they, they walked out to that site and they found a car buried under the ground, <laughs> uh, you know, in this field they didn't know was there. that was under a tree. So, um, you know, I don't, I don't think phase history is like some magical thing that's going to unlock like a bajillion dollars in economic value. Yeah. It, yeah. I, I only bring that up because SAR is such an understudied phenomenology um, in the commercial and public context, not in the defense context. People exploit SAR every single day in unimaginable ways in a defense and intelligence context. But in the open commercial context, we have the Sentinel-1 mission. And, you know, there's yeah. there's a Japanese mission, there's an Argentinian mission, the L-band systems. But there's the NASA mission coming up. But NASA is launching NISAR, which will be the most expensive Earth observation mission they've ever launched like a billion dollars, $1.2 billion. The point is there's going to be a bunch of open data and there's going to be an explosion of research. And when you combine that with easy to access openly licensed X-band data and this competition between us and the other companies that you mentioned, you know, the, the people that invest now in understanding the weird idiosyncrasies of SAR, I think we'll be able to develop applications and models that literally look like magic yeah. when presented to a customer because it's not intuitive it's not optical it's not how we see the world yeah. but there's information buried in that in that um sample that isn't obvious and is and is relevant so yeah that, that's probably what i'm most yeah. excited about
and all the magic uh, use cases uh, will come up from from this technology, also from Hyperspecly and so on, which are not considered in the market reports, in yeah. the market forecasts. Question to end today's conversation, which I think has yeah, is full of so many gems, and I would really love to to have a second um, episode uh, around yeah oh, as a follow up to this one. But um, in 2020, you tweeted that Planet's acquisition of Google's Terabella was the most important deal in geospatial of the last decade. Um, you have mentioned previously that the biggest acquisition in the analytics space has been Climate Corporation, which was bought by Monsanto. And on the TerraWatch podcast a couple of months back, which was happening during the SPAC boom, where all satellite companies, it seems like, went, went, went public, um, you, you talked about this topic as well. Do you, what are other important acquisitions or filings which you find most impressive and, and, and most telling? And do you see any listings or M&A happening in the future, obviously, despite right now being maybe a hard time? Will Meta buy uh, Umbra at some point? <laughs> <laughs> Will Meta buy Umbra? That'd be cool. If, if you know Mark um, uh, and you're willing to, to introduce me, that would be that'd be great. I would happily have a conversation with them. That they need would some, be better invested than Meta. By the way, <laughs> <just saying. laughs> they they need some more synthetic aperture radar in the metaverse. I think. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, um, when I said that the the planet acquiring. Terabella from Google was the most important acquisition. It's because they they stole it. I mean, Google dumped Terabella, uh, which is now the SkySat constellation, um, under Planet for like somewhere between like 15 and 20 percent of the equity in Planet, um, and that was all public, you know, information that you can find online if you really dig for it, which I did. Um, Planet. You know, they also acquired the RapidEye assets from the PE firm that bought them out of bankruptcy in, in Canada. Yeah, that, you know, in my opinion, the RapidEye assets are what carried their agricultural business. The SkySat constellation is what carried their government business. Uh, and now Planet's public, and you can see their financials. You can see where their money comes from. You can see how much cash they have on hand. Um, and they're definitely in a very strong position. Of all the public Earth observation companies, they're by far the strongest in terms of their cash position and their market cap. And, you know, um, it, apart from like Maxar and Airbus, which I almost don't count because they're incumbents. But um, yeah, I I worry that uh, that we're due for a wave of consolidation. It, there's a great um, newsletter that you should read if you don't. It's called Case Closed. It's it's uh, by a guy who goes by Space Case on Twitter. Um, and I've been friendly with him for a long time. This weekend, he published the Q3 earnings report update on all of the space companies. Oops, my cat just jumped in my lap. And uh, it includes, I think, Black Sky's earning report. I don't think it has Satellogic or Planet, um, but it's got- I have the open right in front of me because I was about to read it later today. Yeah, look at, look at there's like a scorecard that he creates. Look at when people run out of money based on their current burn rate. I mean, yeah. and look at the last one he did for the second quarter the wow nice. you yeah. you can see that we are due for reckoning either people are going to raise more money and and you know they're going to dilute their stock and that's going to have effect on who they can recruit and how they can compensate people and so on how much control they have over the company um but uh yeah i mean it doesn't take a genius to see that if we go into a recession um there's going to be a wave of consolidation who who rolls who up totally 
totally above my pay grade. But uh, but yeah, that's you know that's something I'm I'm actively worried about because I think competition is good. I think this industry is too big and too important for one or two companies to dominate it. Um, and uh, so you know I hope that people can stay independent longer. And I certainly think that venture capital and 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 a lot of the SAR companies staying private through this period means that there's a possibility that 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 you know won't happen in SAR. But I you know I honestly don't know. Um, but Historically, acquisitions do work. Uh, Maxar was really a merger between GOI and Digital Globe, and then MDA, which they spun back out. But you know, this is a this is an industry that goes through waves of consolidation once every decade, and we're kind of due for another one. So I think you'd be I'd, I'd be remiss to try to you know make specific predictions, but I think it's going to change, and I think it's going to start changing by summer to, to fall next year is when you're going to see a lot of the activity happen. That's when, yeah. that's when the Piper comes. Uh, so <laughs> we'll see. Wow, Joe. Um, so we will definitely read this, this article from your, from your, from your friend, but I have to say like, I could talk to you forever. I have the feeling in, in the office, it was the same. You would talk one hour, then two hours. I think we went into the third hour appointments, uh, stopped us. Uh, and it was a really nice discussion with you. I would love to have a, uh, another podcast in two years. Or, or three years when you when you disrupted uh, the industry in a positive way. Um, so the um, we close uh, the conversation um, by asking you who we should have on the show next. And then we try to get this person, maybe with an intro from you. Well, I think Case would be a great person to have on. If, if you want to really understand, like, what's cool about the Earth observation space right now is that enough companies are public that you can have a holistic picture of the industry and the finances of these companies and the demand signal. I think Case would be a great target. Um, uh, yeah. But but my yeah. my favorite folks, to be honest with you, are folks like you who build application companies. So the the other person that I would recommend, um, just off the top of my head, uh, would be. Maybe, maybe someone from Arturo. I think they're a super cool company, US-based yeah. company, doing insurance work, using SAR, using optical, um, and probably nice. kindred spirit for you all. So I'd be happy to make an introduction to someone there if you're interested in them too. We, we try to get them both, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, 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 that's really what we want to do. We want to bring together people which are launching uh, uh, satellites with people which are analyzing satellite data which, with people which are understanding the space. Yeah, well, thank you very much. Really, Joe, that was, that was really great. Uh, we're a little bit over time and we, we really appreciated that you took the time. So thank you very much for, for spending this hour with us and for the audience, thanks for listening. All right, uh, lift off and the clock has started. Lift off, we have a lift off.